Welcome to FarmLab Audio Webinars. Today, Episode 2 Constraints in Sandy Soils. All right, might um, got a few more people flowing in uh, as we get started, so uh, we might um, might start the discussion now. Start with uh, start with intros here. Uh, can everyone hear me? Okay, loud and clear. Uh, now we've got uh, so I'm Sam from Farm Lab, uh, and we've got Dr. Lynn McDonald here today um, from CSIRO. So I'm just going to introduce Lynn really quickly. Uh, we've got Florin here as well to take some questions. And as usual, we'll be recording the webinar and um, posting it online because there's always some really interesting things that come up in these uh, these webinars that relate to soil. And obviously with harvest on at the moment, I know uh, there's probably a few people out there that um, wanted, to be able, wanted to make it and probably can't. So... Um, yeah, so look, uh, without further ado, uh, let's, uh, let's crack into it. So yeah, joining me today is Dr. Lynn McDonald. Um, uh, Lynn is a CSIRO researcher and team leader of organic uh, matter function and isotope traces. Diverse team of soil scientists based in Adelaide and Canberra. Uh, they develop innovative management of supply chain solutions through understanding carbon and nutrient transformations in soils and tracing the fate of elements through agricultural commodities. Um, that's, a, that's a mouthful. Uh, we're here to talk to, to Lynn today about um, uh, diagnosing and managing constraints, constraints in sandy soils a um, current grdc project uh, that lynn is leading and uh i'm sure you're all interested to hear more in. so um yeah so lynn hopefully i i got most of that right uh, that... yes it's um, a fairly big <laughs> mouthful for you sam so yeah nice work <laughs> Yeah, good, Lynn. Well, um, look, you know, so um, we might uh, we might just start today with a bit of an overview of the GRDC project, and um, then we can sort of segue into uh, subsoil constraints, soil carbon, uh, all the really exciting things that, um, that the farm lab community care about and uh, and want to know more on. So, uh, look, I'll I'll let you take it away. Um, uh, uh, 
go ahead if you want to share your screen there. Lynn's got okay. a brief, brief presentation. And then just for everyone uh, involved in the webinar, um, you know, we do make, try to make this as participatory as possible. So we'll get, um, we'll get to questions at the end. You can either pop um, questions in the chat and, uh, uh, or just fire them away when we open to questions. So um, go ahead, Lynn. So hopefully my um, screen is sharing. Um, I have kept it fairly short on the um, slides today because I guess I'm hoping for um, more discussion than anything else. Um, but I do have to acknowledge that um, the GRDC Sandy Soils Initiative is a large programme of research and it wouldn't be possible without our um, university and state government um, partners as well as engagement across the um, farming systems um, groups, um, which has been a really valuable component to the project. Um, so the, the project um, is looking to improve both the diagnosis um, and the management of primary um, constraints to poor crop water use um, in sandy soils across the low to medium rainfall zone. Um, and the project came about because there was a lot of discussion around the unused water um, at harvest in sandy soil systems um, and how we could get better use of that water um, to flow through to, to yield gains. Um, and there was a real lack of understanding um, as to what um, those constraints, what the primary constraints were um, to root growth um, and water use. Um, and also how to target um, those constraints in terms of management. So the sandy soils region across the southern region is broad and we have a large variety of different sand types. Um, so across these different sand types, we have a whole range of different constraints that come into play. On the surface, it might be water repellents. Um, and then as we go down the, the profile, there's typically poor water holding capacity um, poor nutrient retention, um, as well as hard layers within the soil. Um, and deeper down, there may be acidity issues or pH issues in both acid and alkali, and also potential sodic layers at depth. So it's a real um, mixture of different constraints that come into play. Um, and at the time, there'd been growing interest in some of the deep amelioration approaches to address um, the constraints at the time. The project does look at both amelioration, so intensive deep tillage type strategies, as well as annual um, mitigation strategies that are achieved through cedar practice. Um, but today I am going to concentrate on the amelioration side of things. Um, but broader across the, the project, we are looking to identify which sandy soil environments are worth investing these amelioration approaches in. So a um, quick bit of geography um, for everyone. Hopefully um, people will be able to identify one of our project sites uh, near them. We do stretch all the way from the Eyre Peninsula um, to southwestern New South Wales. Um, and in 2006, there was very mixed attitudes um, across the region and um, in places reluctance to ameliorate based on past bad experiences. Fast forward to 2019, and we have a fairly big appetite, um, particularly for ripping. 
um, with a certain attitude of bigger, deeper, better. Um, but that's not the case everywhere. And key to understanding where is not only which constraints are at play, but also an understanding of what the yield gap um, across the low to medium rainfall is, because essentially that's what we're chasing um, in order to ensure that there's return on investment from the intensive strategies. So just, just on this, Lynn, just on this slide, um, so what you're saying here across, across here, the yield gap is an average of two to three tonnes per hectare? We have estimated it at the moment, um, and I would say that yield gap estimates tend to be a bit rubbery around the edges. Um, but yes, based on characterisation of the water, um, the plant available water, then we estimate a yield gap of two to three tonnes across the region. Due to subsoil, subsoil constraints? Um, due to a variety of constraints. So in sandy soils, um, water repellence on the surface also comes into play, as well as the subsoil issues, yes. Yep, fantastic. Wow. Um, so at the beginning of the project as well, we, um, we had an inkling that um, perhaps the nutritional aspects of sandy soils were not the only issue at play, um, although there had been lots of discussion around how to improve um, nutrient supply in these sands because obviously they're inherently um, low fertility. Um, but very early in the project, um, we gathered a lot of data that demonstrated the physical constraints within sandy soils um, are widespread and they are probably stronger than, um, than we had anticipated. So from the data we've collected, um, we can fairly reliably say that most sands um, in the southern region will have some type of physical constraint within 20 centimetres that's limiting root growth. And that can extend um, fairly deep into the profile, 60 centimetres or more. And having knowledge of um, how, what this physical constraint looks like helps us target um, the amelioration approaches. So anything above the red line here would be indicative of um, limited root growth due to that physical constraint. The physical constraints are arising not just from compaction, um, but from a hard, um, hard setting type um, behavior or cementing behavior that seems to occur at different depths within different sand types. Um, and we have added to the project, we have a postdoc component that's looking to understand that cementing behavior um, and how it flows um, through impacting crop growth through the season. Um, I just wanted to demonstrate, I'm sure many of you have seen uh, ripping in operation, um, but this is a little video clip of just how disruptive um, these types of approaches um, can be. Um, so the, the ripper tines there are probably going down to about um, 35, 40 centimetres. We have a trial peg just gone through, um, but it does, it does demonstrate the extent to which there's uplift um, from the ripping process. And of course, we're aiming to shatter um, those areas of high soil strength through these types of um, approaches. And, and just, uh, just quickly here, Lynn, cost. I mean, this isn't 
a cheap exercise by any means, is it? Um, deeper effect? Um, it's it's not. So the different um, amelioration approaches um, vary de depending on exactly um, what's being used um, and how it's being targeted. We are um, gathering information to conduct economic analysis. Um, and typically we have a sort of straight ripping operation um, estimated to cost about 60 to 90 um, dollars per hectare. Um, although if you start adding various different amendments along with that, or um, if you aim deeper, then the costs will obviously go, go up. Yeah, interesting. I, I, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like surgery, right? I mean, if you, if you go to the doctor, uh, you know, they'll always try and get to the introduced measures, preventative measures before you ever have to, uh, have to go and go and get a, uh, a surgery. Um, and I mean, it's, it's a similar thing, you know, you want to, want to be implementing measures over time. That's going to, that are going to reduce your, uh, your risk or probability that you're going to have to do deprooping in the future. And I, I think that's something we'll get to, um, in a minute. Um, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let, let you go on, but, um, yes, know, it, I is, think, it is interesting. I think that's a very, very good point. And also, um, treatment after a rip to ensure the longevity of effect, um, is a, big consideration um, as well. So once we've opened up that soil, we want to be confident that it's going to last um, and manage the system um, so that it does last as long as possible. Um, so this is just a quick snapshot across um, a large number of our trials um, to demonstrate the type of yield responses that we are seeing. Um, the top graph uh, represents the control yield versus a deep tillage event, um, which we have included a variety here. So rip, ripping from 30 centimetres to beyond 50 centimetres or ripping plus inclusion. Um, and I also have spaded treatments to 30 centimetres within this graph. But the main point is that anything above um, this one-to-one -one line is a increase in yield um, and Typically, we have seen um, between about 0.5 to 1 tonnes um, on average, um, and that does vary depending on the type of amelioration treatment um, that we are looking at. So typically, a deeper rip um, will bring us um, better gains. However, that does depend on exactly what that physical constraint looks like down the um, down the profile. You'll also notice some negative responses um, and they are typically not in the first year um, but seem to be associated with the very dry years where there's perhaps not the moisture um, refill on the profile to take advantage of. The second graph um, demonstrates what can be achieved above and beyond a physical um, amelioration alone. So I've got the physical amelioration on the x-axis and um, plus some type of amendment on the, on the y. And those amendments that we've used um, are typically things like increased fertilizer inputs, um, chicken litter where it's available um, in the different regions, or a nitrogen-rich um, hay material. Um, and on the whole, um, 
although results are fairly variable, um, but the perhaps the most re reliable results we've seen are around chicken litter. Um, so where we have boosted the nutrition um, available to the plant, um, and this is indicated in the red line, we tend to have about another five tonnes per hectare um, gain. So the, th th this is this is really interesting, and I'll just um, you know because we we put something out on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn yesterday, a uh, quote from one of your papers there, Lynn, uh, one of the papers that you co-authored around how a 0.5 percent decline in soil organic carbon in a 10, centi 10 centimeter layer of soil with a bulk density of 1.3 grams per centimeter cubed equates to a loss of 540 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. Um, and I just thought that that was relevant, relevant to bring up here, especially when you're, you're, you know, you're introducing using uh, chicken manure to, to increase this is the impact that um, uh, carbon loss and carbon improvement has on nutrients, uh, uh, you know, holding um, nutrient holdings and um, retaining nutrient levels. Um, so, you know, potential fertilizer savings in, in the future there, which um, is absolutely fascinating. Yes, I think there, there has been a lot of interest um, in the chicken litter aspect um, and a lot of that gain does come from the, the um, nutrition that it supplies, obviously, but it also comes down to some of the timing of release um, of that material um, and perhaps also some of the, the micronutrients that are in there. Um, there is probably a caution in the sandy soil environment around the use of surface application of chicken litter um, because we do have um, trial results that demonstrate an increase in water repellence several years after the chicken litter has been applied. Um, so we do need to keep an eye on exactly how much chicken litter is added and what subsequent effects there might be on, on the repellency aspect. Uh, are those correlated with yeah? Are those correlated with specific soils, Lynn? How how do um how can um, our listeners avoid the uh, yeah avoid that? So the it was correlated with a very dry start, which is typically when water repellents um, tends to express itself. Um, it did happen about four years after the application of chicken litter, so it does demonstrate that. Um, some of that, um, the waxier type material is left behind. Um, it was in a trial that had high rates of chicken litter application. Um, so there were two treatments, five tons and 20 tons. And the 20 tons was particularly um, poor, which would not be a typical management practice um, that farmers would implement. They'd more likely be applying perhaps down at the um, two to seven ton, depending on the, the yield target that's being aimed for. Yeah, great. The other tactic there um, is to actually mix the chicken litter or to deep place it into the system. Um, but we're still looking at whether or not the economics of um, some of that adds up. Fantastic. So the, the other... Um, point here I think is we do have an awful lot more of these treatments sit below that one to light one to one line um, which indicates that there are risks um, of negative impact of adding some of these amendments 
And we think that that relates to um, early biomass production, where we have a lot of biomass and not the rainfall at the end of the season to actually um, finish the crop. So there's a, a balancing act to be had um, around looking for improvements above and beyond a physical amelioration below, um, alone, sorry. Um, so really in the, in the southern region, in fact, um, across many parts of Australia, um, the adoption of conservation agricultural approaches um, have been um, very well um, taken up. Um, and these practices tend to look to minimise soil disturbance, um, increase permanent soil cover and use rotation um, to improve the, the systems. And in some ways, the strategic deep um, tillage is a little bit counterintuitive to this because it is a big disruption. Um, but I think we have to remember um, that it is an infrequent corrective therapy um, where we're looking to address specific constraints and then manage the system going forward to maintain those improvements um, and get the bigger crops and the bigger biomass um, to flow back through the system. Um, so key to understanding um, how to manage these systems is really understanding um, the soil constraints and where they occur within the profile. I think oftentimes we talk about soil health in a fairly generic manner, um, but to me, we really need to understand whether we're working um, in a preventative um, type case or whether there are acute and chronic issues within the soil that require more intensive um, approaches to ameliorate them and then move forward um, from, from that. Um, and of course, if we can address our soil constraints and improve um, productivity or plant biomass production in some of our systems, then that's the first step in actually looking to build um, soil organic matter um, and improve the, the resilience of the systems. I would probably also mention here that there's always a big focus on the carbon um, within soil organic matter. Um, and accumulating um, soil carbon for sequestration purposes. Um, however, oftentimes to get the function we want from soil organic matter, it does need to decompose. Um, so we're looking at long-term type approaches that have building phases, um, and then we use the value of soil organic matter. Um, so it's not only about the, the carbon stock per se, but it's about the flow through the system. And that um, is my um, introduction for today's discussion. Fantastic, Lynn. That was uh, incredibly interesting. All right, well, I might start with a, a few quick questions. Uh, I've, I've got about a thousand following that presentation. And uh, bear in mind, everyone, that we'll um, open up to the audience uh, for questions in a second. Uh, as well. So please feel free to chuck any questions you've got in the chat and uh, chat or um, 
you know, stop and, and yell out if you've, if you've got any. Uh, so I'm going to start because uh, I can, because uh, I'm the host and um, I get to. Uh, the, when it comes to constraints, let's just, uh, you know, keen, keen to talk about diagnosis and, um, you know, how do farmers and agronomists diagnose and identify um, which constraints they need to address first. Um, we're, you know, a few things here. There's soil testing, obviously. There's visual factors. Uh, is there any remotely sensed data that um, that you've you've found could be used to identify these these constraints here, Lynn? So, in terms of um, remote diagnosis, we haven't cracked that one yet, um, and it will be a really valuable one um, because it also um, ties into the spatial aspects of where we need to start and stop these amelioration practices. Um, but typically the approach that we've taken for setting up our research trials is to identify areas that are underperforming. Um, and we can um, do that from whether it be yield maps um, or NDVI um, through the season. Um, and then it's in combination with uh, some soil sampling to understand what's going on within the, the profile um, in the underperforming area. Sure. How, um, how deep... Um should our listeners be soil sampling? I mean, are we looking down to a metre? You spoke about the constraints between 20 and 60 centimetres there, Lynn. What are your thoughts? Um, so, yeah, the, the framework that we have used to discuss the constraints context um, is the first thing that we need to do is think about getting, you know, maximising opportunity for moisture to get into sandy soils. Um, so in the sandy soils context, the, the water repellency comes into play quite quickly um, because that will prevent um, good soil moisture um, within the profile. And subsequently, we are looking to move uh, down the profile and identify or eliminate um, specific constraints. And to me, one of the really important things to eliminate is pH. Um, or acidity issues, um, and that can be done through uh, pH dyes. Um, it's probably easier to do it um, on a dye basis as opposed to a soil test. Soil testing, we typically do 0 to 10, whereas you may have an acidity band within the, the topsoil that's, um, that's finer than that. So the pH dye um, allows you to to visualise whether or not there, there's um, something to look at there. Um, if you did use the dye type methods, um, then you'd probably want to follow up um, to get a quantification of that pH because that will then inform the, the amount of lime that needs to be um, added. Re really interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, that's, it's, I mean, you know, it really does come down to that ground truth thing and to actually see, getting out there and seeing what's going on beneath the soil. Um, you know, I, I certainly love using technology where, where we can and, you know, remotely sense data is the, um, you know, the hot new thing in, in ag agriculture. But um, when it comes to diagnosing subsoil constraints and uh, any, any soil constraints really, um, you know, getting out there into the paddock uh, it can't be beaten from a uh, diagnosis perspective um yeah it's yeah it's in, it's interesting it's very interesting em mapping can also help but again there's a need to um to dig the holes and do the sampling to really confirm what's going on yeah yeah great uh now i don't know if uh 
any of our listeners are aware, but yesterday was um, World Fertilizer Day. So uh, I just I might touch on uh, fertilizers, chicken litter. Um, i just wondering, in terms of your research, Lynn, uh, you know, what, what have you found works really well and, and why? So, uh, you know, talking about improving uh, soil fertility uh, as well as soil carbon, the long-term versus short-term effects. And, um, you know, if we can just have a bit of a discussion around that, I think um, it'd be quite quite interesting so in terms of the the nutrient supply side i was off if we accept that a lot of these deep sandy soils have the physical constraint then um, and we address that through an amelioration approach then it then offers the opportunity to get material at the same time as ameliorating into the profile um, so we have um, a trial led by Mali Sustainable Farming, um, which has looked at different types of amendments. And we've, we've looked at the C to N ratio of the amendments to guide how we think um, the crop will respond. So essentially we use the C to N ratio to indicate um, how much nitrogen mineralization we expect. Um, so, so, so let's just actually let's just dive into the CTN ratio. So I, I, we see this coming up quite a bit with uh, with soil testing um, uh, with our users. What can you just give us a give give somebody that has no clue, uh, i.e. me, uh, a bit of bit of a back background into all right. What are we looking for? We're looking for a high ratio, a low ratio. What's the um, just just uh, break that down. So there's, yes, um, soil organic matter will typically have a carbon to nitrogen ratio of around about 12. Um, and these different amendments range a fair bit um, around, around that. Um, it's chicken litter in particular is very variable in its C to N ratio. Um, but there is a perhaps a, a sweet spot in some ways um, around that ratio in terms of mineralization um, and immobilization. So if we have a, a residue with a very high carbon content like oaten hay or, or cereal hay, um, then it will tend to immobilize nitrogen. Um, and that means that the microbial community needs nitrogen from elsewhere um, in order to, to use it. Um, so the microbial community will be locking up nitrogen from, from the soil um, when we add oat and hay. Um, and that was demonstrated within in the trial. However, we also have to remember that that is locked up for later in the season um, or subsequent seasons. Um, whereas so 12 in, is good. We, we, we don't want higher because it locks up um, nitrogen and... And 12 is the C10 ratio of soil, um, whereas amendments will range um, range more widely. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, um, then we went to optimise the C to N ratio of a mixed residue input um, at round about 22. Um, and we thought that that would um, not release... Um, a huge amount of nitrogen up front um, and it would be slower decomposition for later in the season. And was it? 
having um, other the results first, available. Yeah. So <laughs> in, the, in the first year, yes. So in the first year, the C to N ratio was a very good predictor um, of the yield benefits that we saw. Um, and the higher C to N ratio of the chicken litter um, supported the biggest crop production. Um, however, the, the real aim of that trial was to look at how that performs um, over multiple years um, because it affects the, the nitrogen availability for the subsequent seasons. Um, so we still have to disentangle um, the, the subsequent years, but the first year, very predictable. Second year, we were um, hit by drought. Um, so it wasn't particularly um, good season to to disentangle that, but we are following it through for five years. Fantastic. Um, I just want to touch on longevity now of the uh, the deep ripping, but also you know just looking at uh, the long term long term. Uh, I guess keeping keeping soil in a in a uh, relatively fertile, sort of productive um, fashion for, for over the long run. So I mean, firstly, how do we is there any, anything um, farmers can do to avoid deep, deep ripping in the future? Any management practices they can instigate to avoid that, that high cost of deep ripping if they have a relatively, if there's nothing wrong with the soil um, noticeably at the moment? And, um, and then let's say people do have to go down the deep ripping path. What is the, you know, how long does that last and what, what are the effects? And then what do you have to do to then manage um, soil? So well? I think um, in terms of, um, managing the system to prevent the high soil strength and the compaction type um, issues. To some extent, sands will, they have that, that nature and tendency to become um, fairly tightly packed. Um, so there's a certain amount of natural settling and hardening will happen. Um, but controlled traffic, certainly, um, and rotation to ensure that we are getting deep rooting um, crops um, into the into the profile to keep um, structural aspects um, in in play, um, but control traffic would certainly um, be one aspect, and particularly um, after ripping, um, we want to minimise the trafficking um, on particularly the just ripped um, system. Yep, fantastic. Um, do we do we have any questions from the uh, from the audience? Is yet? Does anyone want to yell out or chuck them in the ch in the chat? Nope, that's all right. I thought. Yep. Yep. No questions yet? Go for it. Yes. No questions. No. No, cool. Sorry, we had a few people going off mute. I thought we might have uh, have some there. Um, okay, cool. So, 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 Lynn, just just back to that point there. So that's um, uh, so that's sort of prevention as well as sort of ongoing soil management post deep ripping there, um, especially as well. Yep, fantastic. Yes, um, the the other important aspect, I guess, post. Um, deep ripping um, is to ensure that we are feeding the crop, whether it be through fertilizers or other other um, amendments, um, to maximise the potential. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, 
Oh, we just had a question from Steph. Um, thanks, Steph. Uh, does the addition of mycorrhizal fung fungi extend uh, the depth of cereal crop crops? So, uh, so I guess, uh, yeah. So, how have you dealt with mycorrhizal fungi before, and how deep will they uh, they extend to? So we haven't specifically looked at mycorrhizal fungi within um, yep, these. Fruits, yeah, yeah, no, I get it, Steph. That's good. Yep. Steph's just, uh, yeah, yeah, just explain. That's the depth of the crop root. Um, um, so, yes, I don't know at this stage. Um, I think mycorrhizal fungi, the hyphae, can um, extend extensively over fairly large um, distances, um, but I don't know if they tend to um, go laterally or, or down the profile. Uh, and I can probably add to that, Steph. The the people to ask, you know, if you know if you know of um, Guy Webb and Soil Sequest or the Soil Carbon Co. Um, it's their sort of commercial arm. They're doing a lot of work in uh, seed inoculating seeds with mycorrhizal uh, fungi and uh, to help sequester carbon deep into the uh, the profile. So there is a lot of lot of work starting to happen in that space. Um, uh, but yeah, really interesting question. Yep, cool. Uh, have we got any more on that front? We might uh, might delve into. I think um, if we're we're able to get the deeper rooting capacity. Um, so you know, at the beginning of these this project, we were um, digging various profiles on underperforming sands, and the roots were going twenty, twenty five, you know, maybe thirty centimeters. Um, but if we can get the deeper rooting. Um, capacity, then it will take soil biology deeper into the profile um, because the roots will be supplying um, root exudates, so simple sugars and amino acids that the microbial community can use. Um, and the mycorrhiza fungi, of course, are a symbiotic relationship. So having, having the roots deeper um, makes sense that the, the mycorrhiza will also be deeper um, within the profile. Yeah, fantastic. Um, just a just a broad question, Lynn. So uh, quite often we've um, dealt with uh, toxicity toxicity in relation to um, subsoil constraints uh, and how it impacts available water capacity. Um, things like boron. Uh, I mean, we're in New England. There's um, we do get some aluminium at depth, but it's not a we don't really have a sandy soil up here. But yeah, down south, uh, Mallee, boron, um, uh, sodicity, other things. Um, uh, should we manage these soils uh, the same way? I, as in, is the solution, uh, can we deep rip these soils? If we've got a to toxicity, toxicity problem down at 60 centimetres, um, uh, is deep ripping still the way to go in those? Um, I, would, I wouldn't be advising deep ripping um, into a toxic layer. Um, so if you know you've got boron at a specific depth, um, then you don't really want to be ripping into it because with ripping there is a certain amount of uplift as well mm -hmm. so you might actually be raising that issue um, shallower in the profile. So I guess it's one of the considerations um, we need to you, you need to look at if you're facing one of the one of those subsoil constraints. Considering deep ripping, well, you don't <laughs> you don't want to bring toxicity to the surface. That's um, probably the last thing you want to do, right? Yes, I think. Um, 
the whether it be boron or um, sodic layers or even acid layers, um, we do have a couple of trials within this project that have been conducted on um, sands that do have acidity issues. Um, and typically a physical amelioration alone will not um, improve the, the situation at all because it's not addressing the, the primary constraint Fantastic. Um, we're getting to the end of our uh, our webinar session today. So, um, look, uh, just wanted to see if there's anything else that um, you wanted to mention in relation to subsoil constraints or ongoing uh, soil management. I guess our, um, you know, farm lab are all about sort of better soil management. We're trying to provide a, um, I guess, a, you know, our community with... Um, uh, some educational insights into how to improve soil across the varying sort of soil types that we have um, here in Australia uh, at the moment. Most of our listeners uh, are from Australia. Uh, is there anything else you want to add in terms of, um, you know, helping uh, probably more in the sandy soil space um, uh, uh, people get better soil management? And before we move to that, we might just answer this question from Brad, uh, from Brad Bennett. Um, uh, so Brad's just sent through a quick question before, before I fire you with the last one. Now, Lynn, uh, would a more aggressive ripping process with more soil mixing potentially extend the length of the rip effect? So disrupt the cementing nature. Hello, Dad. How are you? Uh, yep. Go for it, Lynn. Um, yeah. So a more disruptive um, ripping um, I think there, it depends to the extent to which you've got the shattering between the, the ripping times. Um, and I think, yeah, Brad um, will be well on top of ripping setup, um, having done a great um, demonstration day. Um, is that a couple of years already um, ago, Brad? Um, with different ripper types. Um, the... I guess there's a balance between getting a more aggressive ripping um, that might disrupt more so the surface soil um, and whether or not there's a particularly high erosion risk where um, that's been conducted. Um, it's probably a bit of a balance. In terms of the cementing layers, um, we are hoping that um, Rodrigo, our postdoc, um, is going to identify why or what's contributing to that cementing behaviour. Um, and at that stage, we should be able to identify whether or not there are any amendments that will appropriately um, address that going forward. The, the amount of mixing, I think certainly um, the characteristics within that cementing layer are different. Um, so if we can dilute it and mix it up, whether that's through spading, um, or a intermediate um, or aggressive ripping is a possibility, but I would really love to know what's what's causing it um, before we look at how we then target that issue. Yep. Thanks, Lynn. Good question, Brad, and good answer, Lynn. Mm. That was um, that was great. So just uh, just to round it off now. So uh, you know, we try and offer, I guess, our uh, 
our, our listeners and attendees, I guess, a, a good insight into um, how to uh, how to better manage soil. Um, what advice, Janet? Just general, broad advice throughout your career have you found in terms of um, what is the best? You know, what, what is the uh, thing number one thing you would recommend um, our listeners do to better manage their soil? Um, could be anything preventative, uh, applying fertilizer, whatever you want. Lynn, go. Um, I think that the the growers in Australia have a really good sort of intimate knowledge in terms of what's going on across their paddocks and where they do have good performance and poor performance. Um, and to me, you know, understanding that poor performance um, is is really important before jumping into a management solution. Um, and as much as we look to identify what the problem is, I think it's equally as important to eliminate issues. Um, and that you know, relates to um, the pH issue, for example, that we were talking about earlier. You're not necessarily looking um, or testing to find, to find a pH issue. Um, but if you test to eliminate that, then it opens up um, more targeted options that are more likely to work. That was maybe a little bit bit confused, but we we don't always have to have the the full answer of what's going on. It's as useful to eliminate what's not going on. Right. That's um. It's very insightful. Uh, uh, Dr. Lynn McDonald, thank you very much for joining us today. That was um, that was absolutely awesome. Um, I, I I think uh, I certainly learnt a lot <laughs> out of this, and I, I hope our listeners did, did too. So um, yeah, look, uh, thanks very much. We'll we'll post this online. Um, people will be able to uh, watch this watch this again. Uh, share we'll share it around on on socials, and uh, really appreciate your time, Lynn. Thank you very much. Well, a big thank you for um, for having me on, and um, yeah, I think we've had some really good chats in the in the run up to this as well. So, thank yeah, you. I think so. I think so. Thanks, all.